Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Good morning, Vineyard Cleveland. It is such a joy and an honor to be joining with you guys virtually in worship and also to be able to join with you guys virtually and share the message today. Uh, So let's join together virtually and pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this day, God. Thank you that you are in control of every mistake, of every mishap, of every um, uncharted, unprecedented time that goes forth, Lord. That COVID's not news to you, that the presidential election's not news to you, but God, you are sovereign and you control all these things in your hand and you've got a good plan that you are working for the good of those who love you, Lord. Um, We pray that you would help us to have our hearts open to you today, God, that you would speak your message into our hearts and that we would be changed by you, Lord, not just with some fresh ideas, but with um, new life into our into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help me to move out of the way, that you would speak the words that you want to speak, and that we would hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in a sermon series called, Who is My Neighbor? Kingdom Unity in a Divided World. The title comes from Luke 10.29 in the opening of the story of what is commonly known as the Parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish teacher of the law approached Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the Pharisee, or the teacher of the law, wanted to justify himself. And he said, well, okay, but but who is my neighbor? And instead of answering with, oh, those guys, that's your neighbor over there. Or, you know, you're supposed to love these people like you love yourself. Jesus instead told a story about a Samaritan, which was an interesting choice because Samaritans were viewed as racially inferior to the Jews, as morally and religiously inferior to the Jews. They were the people from the wrong side of the tracks with the wrong kinds of ideas. And Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Um, He tells a story about how the Samaritan, at great cost to himself, took care of a wounded Jew when none of the right people did it. The teacher of the law in the story passed by on the other side. The priest passed by on the other side. But this Samaritan, who no good, upright, God-fearing Jew would even touch, was the one to go forward and love his neighbor like like himself. Because the kingdom of God doesn't fall along ethnic or racial lines. It doesn't fall along political or ideological lines. It doesn't keep to itself. The kingdom of God moves outward into others' lives, bringing love and compassion and hope and healing. And it breaks down divisions such as race, ethnicity, class, political party, what have you, in order to bring unity for the glory of God. When asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus instead asks back, which person was the neighbor to the wounded man? Because the kingdom of God is not passive. It actively moves to oppose evil, to bring the goodness and truth of God. 
So throughout this series, we've been talking about being a people of the kingdom, a people who go against the spirit of division and, um, and divisiveness and hostility that seems to be prevalent, whether we are talking about political division, socioeconomic division, ethnic division, or any other kind of division that sets itself up against God's kingdom. And today, we want to talk about the evil of racism. Now, the evil of racism is particularly offensive to the gospel, but the gospel has a special, particular power to sever the roots of racism by digging them out of our hearts and replacing them with gospel opposites. You might be asking though, why is racism particularly offensive to the gospel, right? Well, hopefully, it's becoming increasingly offensive to everybody, right? It might be offensive on intellectual grounds, like, oh, well, we know better than that now, so we aren't racist because we have better education. Um, it might be offensive on empathetic grounds, like, I, I don't want to be treated badly, so I don't want to treat other people badly. You should know how those people are being treated. It might be um, offensive on purely moral grounds. Like, nowadays, being racist is not the right thing to do. But with the gospel, there's more, there's deeper motivation than all of these, right? Because if you believe in a creator God who deserves our worship and all of the glory, and if you believe that this God was willing to empty himself, become like you and die for you in order to save you, if you believe that you have earned nothing and so you owe that God everything, then it is deeply, heart-wrenchingly, soul-hurtingly offensive to treat such a savior, such a God, with any kind of contempt. And this God made all of humanity, every single human, especially in his own image. And the way that we allow his image to be treated reflects on how we view his glory and honor being treated. So it is deeply heart-wrenchingly, soul-hurtingly offensive to treat God's image bearers, other humans, with contempt, to treat them as less than. James 3, 9 through 12, calls out the connection between how we treat each other and what that means about our view of God. He says that praising God, but cursing people who are made in his image is like fresh water and salt water coming out of the same, the same spring. It's like a fig tree bearing olives or an olive tree bearing or a grapevine that bears figs. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. Your view of the glory and worthiness of God will affect how you treat his image. Our representation of God's glory and the beauty of the gospel are at stake when we deal with issues of racism because racism deals directly with people made in God's image. But the good news is not that racism is offensive to the gospel in a particular and powerful way. The good news is that the gospel is particularly and powerfully offensive to racism. Other motivations and methods aim at attacking or changing certain aspects of racism, sure. We attack ignorant beliefs with education, you know, hoping that changed minds will lead to changed race relations. We aim to build empathy by telling stories so that the other becomes more familiar, right? Because it's harder to hate people you you, that you understand. We try to doctor our talk. We try to doctor our language and all those types of things. But the gospel 
targets all of these things and more because its aim is not to change behavior or even to fix people. The gospel is about making people new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone, in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The gospel is not a method or a philosophy. The gospel explodes into our, into our hearts with the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Uh, racism is a multi-headed monster, a network of sins, a weed with many deep roots. But the gospel has special, particular power to sever the roots of racism by replacing the roots with gospel opposites and making us new people with hearts hungry for God's glory. Today, we're going to take an extremely quick look at some of the sinful roots of racism and how the gospel digs them out and replaces them with something better. So take pride, for instance. Pride is at the root of many of our sins, so it's no surprise to find it as one of the roots of racism. You can see it in the extreme prides of white supremacy or black power, when people believe they are better than others simply because of the color of their skin. You can see it in the smugness of looking down on other people who aren't as woke as you or who aren't allied with the right side of history. You can see it in the judgment of people who have the wrong kinds of flags in their yard, whether it's a Black Lives Matter flag, a Blue Lives Matter flag, all lives, Trump, Biden, whatever, pick your poison, right? Like mold in a wet basement, pride thrives in the wet basement of comparison. It is constantly looking to others to validate and justify yourself, whether you feel superior by the comparison or inferior. Pride keeps us from truly listening to each other and seeking to understand each other because pride can't be wrong. It can't lose. Pride intentionally blinds us to our weaknesses. It tells us that we're fine and that there's nothing that we need to change. Nowhere that we can grow or improve. And it does this because pride can't handle being threatened. So if you're listening to this right now and you've already started to tune out because you're like, oh, racism, Shh, got that. I'm super not racist. I implore you to not harden your heart like that, right? Because we, as long as we're breathing air, there's room for us to improve all across the spectrum of racism, greed, pride, all these different things, right? And the Holy Spirit has things that he wants to be speaking to you but we can close ourselves off to that. So open your hearts and make sure you, you humble yourself to listen because God might be speaking things to you. Um, and pride wants to hide that from you. Pride constantly fears for its life and lashes out like a cornered animal that knows that it's in danger. And pride is in danger because it is rebellion against God's rule and against the natural order of things. All of life was created and designed to point us towards our wonderful and awesome and beautiful creator. But pride seeks to unbalance that by pointing life towards something else, usually something that has to do with us. And because that is the fast track to destruction, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, that he hates pride. But thankfully, the gospel destroys all semblance of the illusion of pride. The gospel tells you that you aren't better than anyone else. In fact, 
your sin was so disgusting and so wretched and so evil that God himself had to come down and shed his own blood and die to clean you. That's how gross your sin was. That's a devastating blow to the pride of superiority. But the gospel also tells you that you are so loved, so valued, so worth it, that God himself came down from the cosmos and shed his own blood to save you, to make you his, so that he can be with you forever because that's how much he loves you. That's a devastating blow to the navel-gazing pride of inferiority. The kind of pride that says, oh, I'm a, I'm a worthless worm and there's no good in me. No, God says he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Pride shattered. Christians are those who can say with Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And can also say with Paul in 1 Timothy 1.14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The more we preach to ourselves the depths of our sin, swallowed up by the depths of love and acceptance of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the more we will be freed from the pride that keeps us divided. Another root of racism is fear. Fear puts up a wall against intimacy. It strengthens the divisions between people. It keeps us from moving forward and often keeps us from engaging with people different from us. We're afraid of the differences. We're afraid to mess up or be wrong. We're afraid to be made fun of. We're afraid to say the wrong thing. We're afraid the other people might be dangerous or untrustworthy. A white person might be afraid that the black people they see on the corner are gangbangers. A black person might be afraid that the white woman in the park is going to call the police on them and that the police are going to end up in an altercation that's going to cost this, this man his life. The police might be fearing for their own lives, or they might be fearing for the reputation and how this interaction is about to go, right? People might fear that someone's wrong views will lead them into racism or Marxism or conservatism or liberalism. Fear causes us to shrink back from people when we need to press in. It makes us take action when we need to wait, to close ourselves off when we should open up. We fear the uncertainty of embracing people of different ethnicities, political groups, social classes, because there is real risk there, right? The interactions might be uncomfortable. People might actually be dangerous. We do live in a fallen world after all, but the gospel rescues us from fear by assuring us that our true life has been eternally secured for in heaven for us by the death and life of Jesus. First Peter 1, three through five says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Your treasures, your inheritance can't be touched by anything that happens in the world. Your honor can't be tarnished either by your own mistakes or malice from other people because through Jesus, you are destined for an eternal glory that is kept in heaven for you. Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace 
I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And in John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The love and peace and security of Christ pushes out the fear that keeps us apart and allows us to move into people's lives to love and serve them. Hate is another one of the things that is the is a root of racism. And it's the thing that comes quickest to my mind when racism is mentioned. An oversimplified definition of racist of a racist could be simply someone who hates on the basis of race. But why do we hate? In three different articles, Vanessa Van Edwards from the sciencepeople.com, Jennifer Jones Petuli from the Human Systems Dynamics Institute, and Arno Michaelis, former founding member of the white supremacist group The Northern Hammerskins, and the writer of the book My Life After Hate, they all agreed on at least three common sources that drive us to hate. When life seems hard and people are suffering from a lot of general anger and disappointment and they don't really have an outlet for those feelings, hatred of a scapegoat can be an can be that out, outlet for those negative feelings, right? It feels better and easier to blame someone else for your problems instead of doing the hard work of confronting your own issues. People turn to hate in order to deal with the perceived injustices against them. They hate whichever black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat group they blame for their suffering because there's nothing else to take their anger. But Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. The term scapegoat actually comes from the Bible, from the book of Leviticus. Once a year on the day of atonement, the atonement for sins, there were two goats that were taken. One goat was sacrificed and its blood was used to pay for the sin. And the other goat, they would, the priest would lay hands on the goat's head and confess the sins of the people over the goat and then send that goat away from the people into the wilderness to symbolize how the sin is being removed from the community. And in Hebrews 9 and 10, the writer tells us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these things, right? The gospel teaches us that this world is fallen, broken, and twisted because of our own sin, because of the evils that we continually bring into being. And yet, the perfect flawless, loving son of God came and actually chose to take the blame for it all. He took every offense done to us and by us onto himself and paid for it in full with his very life. The wrongs and sufferings that fuel our hatred, be they justified or not, are nailed to the cross. Justice has been served. And furthermore, in Romans 8.28, we learn that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have called according to his purpose. So, not only does the gospel eliminate our need for a scapegoat to blame for our suffering, it transforms the suffering itself into an instrument, a tool for our good, a pathway to life. But sometimes hatred has less to do with finding a scapegoat to blame and more with a fear of managing differences. People want to know who is, in the, who is in the in group and who is not. They may feel that their own identity is threatened by the special differences, important cultural differences that other people bring. And so they choose to hate instead of growing and learning. But we've already discussed how the gospel gives us security from fear, right? 
The gospel also gives us a new, more secure identity, one that can't be threatened by any source. When you follow Jesus, you become a new creation, a beloved son or daughter, a royal priest, a part of Christ's own body. And because of the all-inclusive, completely grace-based nature of this new identity, everybody that you meet is not a threat because they're either sharing in that group identity with you or will hopefully be loved into sharing that group identity with you, right? Because you're always moving out to bring people in, there's no one to fear on the outside of the group. In the book of Acts chapter 26, when Paul was on trial for sharing the gospel, with his very life on the line, what was his priority? Sharing the gospel again. King Agrippa, who's one of his judges, asked him, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me right now will become what I am, except for these chains. The gospel reorients our priorities into loving other people so that they can experience the love and grace and freedom and belonging that Christ has given us, which is yet another blow against hatred. Because part of the reason why people choose hate is that mutual hatred helps create bonds. Right? It helps people feel connected. Arnold Michaelis, talking about how he used to recruit people into his white supremacy group, said that recruiters fail to understand the spiritual mechanics behind a person's need for love, but they know well enough to look for people who are hurting. Simply put, it feels good for a person to feel a sense of belonging, purpose, and value, especially if they lack love in their lives. There are all sorts of healthy ways to meet these needs. But if such needs are not answered with love and humanity, they can be very easily answered with fear, ignorance, and hate. When hurt people are aching for a sense of belonging, they can often find it among people who invite them to come hate others. But hatred is a poison that sickens the soul and hollows out a person. It creates a hunger that can't be satiated until it consumes and devours a person's whole life. But what if, instead of finding a group that invites them to hate, a person receives an invitation into the unconditional, unchanging, unstoppable, overwhelming love of God? What if they are invited into the family that they were created to be a part of? Arna Michaelis again says, it was actually the kindness, of, the kindness of brave people who refused to lower themselves to my level that changed the course of my life, to put me in a position to follow their example and promote the practice of loving kindness myself. We cannot hate violent extremism out of existence. Love is the most effective means to draw people from hate. Guys, that's good news for us because there is no greater love than the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's a good thing that we have a greater love to point to and lean on because our love is often lacking. We get tired of hearing about other people's sufferings. We get tired of having difficult conversations. And oftentimes, it's because we just don't care. Or at least, we care more about our own selves to want to bother sitting in someone else's pit of angst and despair. But this apathy, this self-centeredness, is another root of racism. It's not the militant form of racism that is flashy and showy and easily denounced. It's a subtler sin that sneaks into the center of our hearts and hardens it against other people. It's the kind of racism that makes us roll our eyes whenever we feel like people are playing the race card instead of trying to empathize with them and hearing what their hearts are saying. 
It's the sinful disposition that gets tired of seeing all the hashtag names of God's image bearers who have been murdered. The kind of racism that is too self-centered to bother having yet another involved, drawn out, potentially difficult conversation with someone because they probably won't get it anyway. It's the kind of apathy and self-centeredness that is quick to respond with facts and statistics instead of with a listening ear and an open heart. Because we care more about getting our ideas across and proving ourselves right than we are about the person who is sharing their thoughts and their hearts with us. Self-centeredness leads to oppression and injustice because we want to turn the system to benefit our own needs. Apathy allows oppression and injustice to continue because the issues don't seem to directly affect us, so we put no energy into acting against them. And this might be fine if our goal is simply to live a comfortable life, a simply moral life of avoiding bad things, but this is not the way of the kingdom, right? This kind of living does not display a life transformed by the love of God that we have in Christ. The more we understand and embrace the good news of the gospel, the more Christ's love will compel us to abandon self-centeredness and to move with compassion and empathy on behalf of others. 1 John 4 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Imagine the power that will be unleashed against the hardness of our hearts if we live like this. If we stop to take in the truth of the gospel, of the love of Christ, compassionately and sacrificially loving our unloveliness and making us into the kind of people that have the power to love like he loves us. Imagine if we took that reality, that compassion, that softness towards those who are imperfect and hurting and suffering, that Christ-like love, into every racial interaction, every political discussion, every disagreement, every conversation. Amazing things, right? Moving on. Greed is another sinful root of racism. It was there at the beginning of America's race problem and has persisted throughout. Because what was the point of slaves anyway? Free labor. Exploiting God's image bearers in order to maximize profit. There are scholars who say that the very idea of race was invented in the 1700s in order to protect slavery because as Western philosophy started trumpeting ideals of equality, justice, democracy, human rights, the pro-slavery forces needed an excuse to continue their profitable way of life because they didn't want to give up the free labor. And so the idea of race and the inferiority of certain races was created to mask their hypocrisy because in their greed, the early Americans couldn't bear the thought of living without free labor. Greed continues to get in the way between peoples and ethnic groups and classes because greed is never satisfied. It always wants more. Greed doesn't just want enough for me, it makes me want yours too. It makes me fearful or suspicious of you taking away from me because I never have enough. 
It makes me unsatisfied with what I have. And greed is not limited to white people or black people, to rich people or poor people. Greed can set itself up in any of our hearts. It just might look different depending on our circumstances. Colossians 3 tells us that greed is idolatry. It's that thought of, if only I had this, or I just wish I had a little bit more of that, or a lot more of that. People love money, not for money's sake. They love it because they want power, control, safety, security, comfort. They love it because it seems to promise a way out of the emptiness of our hearts. We can be greedy for attention or admiration or possessions or experiences. We are greedy because we are looking for a savior, someone or something to rescue us from our empty brokenness. Can you guess where I'm going with this? Jesus is that savior our hearts are looking for, right? He is our security, our safety, our comfort. The more that we treasure him, the more filled we will be. And we can let go of that old insatiable greed. In fact, knowing Christ's sacrificial love moves us to live sacrificially for others. Because Jesus tells us in John 13, 33, as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. We don't have to have power or control because we know that he is a good God who literally loves us to death. And, who, and so we can trust that he will take care of us and give us everything we need. What can we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's Romans 8, 31 and 32. When our heart's treasure is correctly set on the eternal spring of life in Jesus, greed won't be able to get in the way of us loving others the way God calls us to and advancing God's kingdom and we will be able to advance God's kingdom in the area of ethnic justice and harmony. And in addition to all of these roots that spring from our sinful hearts, the Bible teaches us that we also have a spiritual adversary, Satan, who works to exacerbate the problem. He's called the prince of this world by Jesus himself in John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Peter calls him a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. To quote John Piper in his book Bloodlines, There is little doubt that, we're maddeningly, that, that wherever maddeningly hopeless, sinful, self-destructive behaviors and structures hold sway over large groups of people, white or black, left or right, the devil is deeply at work. All of the hashtags and infographics and flag waving and protests and political rallies in the world aren't even the slightest threat to the spiritual forces of evil. There are no policies, no reforms, no politicians, no armies, no countries that can stand against him. Right? There is no hope in defeating Satan outside of the work of Jesus Christ. But in the gospel, we have every hope and every assurance of victory. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
In Christ, when you resist the devil, he will flee. James 4, 7. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. None of Satan's schemes and plans have power over you if you belong to Jesus. Christ sets us free from the many roots of racism because he is the hero our souls need. Powerful enough that even the demons shudder at the sound of his name, but gentle enough to handle every bit of our fragile, broken selves. He emptied himself to his own death in order to fill us with life, the kind of life that can reach across every line of ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, or political division, and induced and to do so in a way with love, humility, compassion, and self-sacrifice, knowing that our every need is met and exceeded by our loving Father, by Jesus, who died for us and rose again to give us life and power. And if you don't know that, whether you are struggling in your faith or you don't know that you ever had faith, Jesus is gentle with you, loving you, reaching out his hand to you because he wants you in his family. He wants you to know and experience and live in the truth that we've been talking about. All you have to do is believe in who he is and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. You take even one step towards you, and I guarantee you that he will run to you, scoop you up in his arms, and cover you with the joyful kisses of a father welcoming back his long-lost child. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are gracious and kind and compassionate, but that also that you are strong you are loving. You are powerful, God. And you see into the, the darkness and the depths of our hearts. And you cut out all of the rot that's inside of us, Lord. You scoop that out and you make us into new creations. Help us, God. Help us to understand and embrace the gospel to greater degrees, Lord. And so that when things come up, when issues of race come up, when issues of political division come up, when issues of just hostility and strife come up, Lord, that we would be people of peace, the peacemakers that, are, that you said are blessed because they are called children of God. In Jesus' name, amen.